following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. If you have your Bibles, would you turn them to, to the first book of the Chronicles? Very good. So you're, you would be willing to come up and read that section with us. Listen to that. That is a wonderful servant right there. If you ask me, I would. You better check that first chapter before you say that. This is, this is, why, this is why the church supports me to uh, read you the scriptures. Oh, boy. Yes, we, um, we have as a goal to read through the scriptures together as a church family, and that means every book of the Bible. Now, don't ask me what I'm going to do when we get to Song of Solomon. That's going to be a special case, all right? But First uh, uh, Chronicles also could be a special case because uh, these names are very difficult. But um, it is in scripture, and it's uh, evidently important because it is there. And so we want to read it. And uh, it's not going to hurt us uh, one little bit. It may test our, uh, our powers of pronunciation, but we will do that. I should also mention, um, I think uh, I had a couple things in mind. I've lost one of them, but uh, evidently John's not feeling too well. Okay, well, we'll let's remember John in uh, prayer tonight. He's been really battling this uh, post-COVID vaccine issue that has uh, beset him, so... I want to remember him in our prayers, and um, yeah, it's been a long time. All right, uh, maybe I'll remember the other thing after I read here. First Chronicles chapter 1. This is a long genealogy here. The family of Adam, the heading says, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Cainan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madal, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Diphath, and Togarma. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshisha, Kittim, and Rodanim. Notice when you read those uh, names that end in I-M, uh, you might think like Kittim, but we would pronounce that with a longer E sound, Kittim. Uh, like the word goyim, G-O-Y-I-M. Remember that word from long ago, goyim, the nations. It's the plural ending. Instead of an S at the end, you have this ending, I-M, for plural. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ra'ama, and Sabteka. The sons of Ra'ama were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. Mitzrayim begot Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom came the Philistines, and the Kaphtarim. Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, and the Sinite, the Arvidite, the Zemarite, and the Hamathite. Sons of Shem were Elam, Ashur, Arphaxad, Lud, Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Meshech. Arphaxad begat Shelah, and Shelah begat Eber, or Eber, and Eber were, to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan begat Almodad, Shelef, 
Hamzar, Maveth, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Ebal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. Shem, Arphaxad, Shelah, Eber, Peleg, Ru, Serug, Nahor, Terah, and Abram, who was Abraham. The sons of Abraham were Isaac and Ishmael. These are their genealogies. The firstborn of Ishmael was Nebajoth, then Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jitur, Nafish, and Kedema. These were the sons of Ishmael. Now the sons born to Keturah, Abraham's concubine, were Zimran, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Sons of Jokshan were Sheba and Dedan. Sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephir, Hanok, Abida, and Elda'ah. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham begot Isaac. Sons of Isaac were Esau and Israel. Sons of Esau were Eliphaz, Reuel, Jeush, Ja'alam, Korah. And the sons of Eliphaz were Timon, Omar, Zephi, Gatam, and Kenaz, and by Timnah, Amalek. The sons of Reuel were Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizrah. Sorry, Mizah. Verse 38, the sons of Seir were Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ana, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishban. Dishan, sorry. These guys will forgive me, I'm sure, later. Uh, and the sons of Lotan were Hori and Homam. Lotan's sister was Timnah. The sons of Shobal were Alion, Manahath, Ebal, Shephi, and Onam. The sons of Zibion were Aja and Ana. The sons of Ana were Dishan. Sorry, the son of Anna was Dishan. The sons of Dishan were Hemram, Eshban, Ithron, and Cheron. The sons of Ezer were Bilham, Zavan, and Jakan. The sons of Dishan were Uz and Aaron. Now these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before a king reigned over the children of Israel. Bela, the son of Beor, and the name of his city was Dinhabah. And when Bela died, Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. When Jobab died, Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. And when Husham died, Hadad, the son of Bedad, who attacked Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his place. The name of his city was Avith. When Hadad died, Samla of Massacah reigned in his place. And when Samla died, Saul of Rehoboth by the river reigned in his place. When Saul died, really Shaul, that's how you would say that, Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. And when Baal Hanan died, Hadad reigned in his place, and the name of his city was Pai. His wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mezahab. Hadad died also, and the chiefs of Edom were Chief Timnah, Chief Aliyah, Chief Jeheth, Jetheth, uh, Chief Aholim Chief Elah, Chief Pinon, Chief Kenaz, Chief Timon, Chief Mibzar, Chief Magdiel, and Chief Iram. These were the chiefs of Edom. Now, that was a mouthful, but if you look forward, you're going to see a whole bunch of others. Yeah, in fact, First Chronicles does this all the way up to and into chapter 9. Uh, before you get to some more easy-to-read narratives. So hang in there as we read on this passage of Scripture. Thank you, Ryan, for coming tonight.
because you reminded me of the other thing that I wanted to say, and that was that Ryan uh, gave me word that uh, his understanding is that his uncle Oscar was a believer in Jesus Christ, which I, I had known before, but I had overlooked when I was praying this morning. I was just taken aback by the news that he had perished, so uh, he is with the Lord now. So that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? As family left behind, of course, is grieving, but not as those without any hope. But let's pray that somebody in the family who does not truly know the Lord may be uh, shaken to uh, become um, cognizant of spiritual realities, come to know Christ. So we trust that will be the case uh, in their lives. So let us know about any arrangements, if you would, brother. We appreciate that. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, please. Matthew in chapter 7. We began looking in this, the last uh, or third chapter of the Sermon on the Mount on Wednesday evening, and I titled the message last time simply by the words, Judge Not. And the truth was that Jesus forbids harsh and unmerciful judgment in chapter 7, 1 and 2. Let me read actually all the way through verse number 5, and we'll treat those texts, those verses this evening. Ask the Lord to help us as we do that. Let's be cognizant of it, listen and heed his word. Our Lord taught this, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye, hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. As I was reading on this passage briefly in one commentary, it just came to my attention You know, our Lord was not very politically correct. I mean, when do you go around and calling people hypocrites? Well, in his case, when they are hypocrites, right? Yeah, exactly. And he knew it uh, very all too well, and but he he called it out like it was. Somebody who was judgmental like this needed to be needed to be called out. So last time we looked at verses one and two, and we made this uh, case in those verses, that is that Jesus, by so saying, judge not lest he be judged, is not prohibiting all judgment. In fact, later on in chapter 7, he tells the believers to be watchful for false teachers. And he tells them, you're going to have to evaluate the outcome of their lives, the direction of their feet, the fruit of their tree. Is the tree good or is the tree bad? And then you will know. And if you know that they are bad fruit, then obviously you stay away from them. You know, just like when you find a, a, a rotten apple in the bag of apples, what's the first thing you want to do with it? Get, get it out because you know that cancer is going to spread, right? You don't want it anywhere near the rest of the good apples, so you get rid of it. So we do, we separate ourselves from false teachers, and that requires a judgment call. And sometimes it requires, uh, you know, as I mentioned last time, calling out someone who is wrong or a false teacher, and even doing so by name. But this passage does not prohibit all judgment, not only because in the same chapter the Lord 
in, uh, enjoins us to make discerning decisions, but also because there are, uh, by my count, at least 15 other passages in the New Testament that talk to us about the kind of judgment that we are to exercise or that we will exercise. Did you know the saints are going to judge angels? Uh, do you know that you are called, this is probably the pinnacle of all the examples in 1 Corinthians 11, 31 and 32, to judge yourselves? Judge not lest ye be judged. You say, well, that means I don't judge myself. Uh-oh, no. Yeah, you must examine yourselves uh, and, and be, um, you know, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith and so let him eat and drink of that cup around the Lord's table to take in a worthy manner. The disciples themselves, the Jewish disciples, will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Christians are to uh, make you know, good uh, discerning decisions or realize what certain situations are all about. Uh, we're supposed to judge according to what is right. We're commanded to judge with a righteous judgment, not with a judgment merely based on externals. Uh, we are to consider or judge whether it is right to obey God or man, and so on. So somebody tells you, look, you have a choice. You obey me or you obey God. What are you, what are you going to do? You're going to make a judgment that that person is wrong, and you're going to have to tell them that they're wrong, like some pastors have had to do recently in Canada even, our neighbors to the north, to say, look, you're going to have to judge whether it's right for me to obey God or men. But, you know, as for me, I'm going to have to obey, obey God because he commands us to join together to worship and closing us down is not according to the word of God. So you have all these examples. Uh, Lydia, in fact, uh, the seller of purple, remember her? She said to Paul, if you judge me to be faithful, come and stay in my house. Well, she's inviting an evaluation of the Apostle Paul and, and asking, look, if you think that I'm a genuine person here, a genuine believer now, please come and receive hospitality from, from my family in our home. Paul had judged the man who was found in sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In fact, he said, I'm not even there, but I've judged already this man who is there in the church. Uh, saints not only will judge the angels, but we will judge the world. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 2, um, and, and so on. Paul invites the church in 1 Corinthians 11, judge among yourselves whether it's right for a woman to pray with her head uncovered. Remember that passage? We went through that in our 1 Corinthians 11 series not so long ago and looked at what that meant. But he's inviting them to make that judgment call, to think through that issue together with him. Um, and in, as far as kind of practical rubber meets the road sort of thing, I did give kind of illustrations of how you might even be in your former life, former days, have been guilty of sin X, whatever that is. So, you know, when you tell uh, this other person, well, don't do sin X, and they throw it back in your face, well, you did that, you did that, as if that's a valid excuse for them to go ahead and live that way. You can't judge me because you did that. Well, listen, I'm trying to tell you, based on my hard-earned experience, that it might be wise for you to avoid that course because I already went down that road and I'll tell you what that road looks like. You know, it's not good. So, yes, we can even express judgment about a certain sinful behavior or activity even if we have been guilty of it ourselves. 
and also if we haven't been guilty of it ourselves. But we have to do so in line with the rest of this text of Scripture. If we say, look, that is wrong, what you're about to do or you're thinking about doing, remember verse 2, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And for some of us, I hope for all of us, if we are saying, you know, sin X is wrong and we have some of that in our background, we are acknowledging, yes, God is going to judge on that particular sin. I am I'm submitted, I'm underneath that judgment. But what I know is that if I've confessed my sin, then he's actually, he's actually cast the judgment for that, eternal judgment for that, upon Jesus Christ. And we would invite you to consider that as well before you do that sin. Don't, don't heap more guilt upon yourself and, and that idea of, as it were, heaping sin upon our Lord. Well, so the text does not forbid all kinds of judgment, but saying all of that, you might forget the main point, which is it does forbid a certain kind of judgment, doesn't it? Yeah, we have to maintain that because our Lord said, judge not that you be not judged. And we began to look at this last time. I want to finish, if we can, this evening. The kind of judgment that is forbidden by Christ is the kind that lands you, I said last time, in hot water with God. It's an unrighteous judgment. You judge not, lest you be judged. Now, this judgment, the second judgment, the first judgment is you judging somebody else. The second judgment, look at that, that you be not judged. Who's the judge in that case? Probably not people. Yeah. Now, people may be used as the instrument of God. In fact, there's a parable like this uh, that teaches us about a man who owed a whole bunch of money. And there was the guy who was the, the master, and then, you know, servant number one and servant number two. And servant one owed the master a whole bunch. He was forgiven. Servant one goes to servant two, you know, throttles him by the neck, says, Pay up your little pittance that you owe me and uh, showing that he did not understand the value of the mercy that he was shown by the master. And so the master, as a person, became his judge and said, no, I've, just, I've changed my mind because you're so wicked. I'm going to make you pay the whole thing. And so a, a person in that case became the judge. But really, this is our Lord saying, look, don't judge that you be not judged by God. By God. That ought to put the fear of God into our hearts. By God would our judgment be. The judgment prohibited is not all kinds of judgment, as we've said, but it's especially that which is directed at others, hypercritical, uh, censorious, hateful judgment. This is sort of understood by those who throw this in your face when they say, judge not. What they're saying today is, you're casting a judgment on me for my behavior, and you are thus hating me. You're a hater, which is entirely false. We're telling people to live according to God's word because that's a loving thing to do. But they understand that this idea of judgment is a hateful, spite-filled, destructive, not a constructive kind of judgment. And, 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 you know, people who 
people who throw this in your face, judge not, lest ye be judged, who are living in sin or wanting to justify themselves, you know that that is the, the case in their hearts and minds because imagine what would happen if instead of you, the Lord Jesus himself told them, say their homosexual behavior is wrong, their, their fornication is wrong, or whatever other sin they love is wrong. The Lord Jesus himself came and did that. What would they say to him? Well, we don't have to think very hard because we can just look back and see what they did to him. You know, he calls them hypocrites. His right-hand man, John the Baptist, calls them a brood of vipers. He, he calls them out in Matthew chapter 23, eight sections in that chapter. He just lays into them because of their evil. He says, you go over land and sea to make a disciple, and you, by the time you're done with him, you make him twice the son of hell as yourselves. That wasn't what they wanted to hear. And so we know what the world would do if Jesus came back and told them that their present sinfulness is unacceptable before God. They would say, judge not, lest you be judged, you know, to Jesus himself. They would say, you're a hater, you're evil, you're morally wrong, and so on. So as long as you're on Jesus' side in this matter, you are okay. Jesus was crucified because he did call out people for their sin. Now, why does Jesus forbid this kind of harsh or hypercritical judgment? Number one, because it's God's place to judge. Remember Romans 14 and verse number 4, if you would please. You can turn there if you wish. Romans 14.4 talks about judging the servant of another. Let me read it. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. The, the real operative phrase for our purpose here is at the beginning. Who are you to judge another? Another servant. It's like you have two families together. Two parents and two parents. And these parents have their kids and these parents have their kids. And you know it's not the place of these parents over here to be disciplining the children of the parents over here. That's their business. You just stay out of it. Even if the parents... If you think these parents haven't done quite right or are too harsh or too lenient or whatever, just look, that's their, that's their children. Think about that with God. Think about that when you're ready to pass judgment on someone else. You say, wait, wait a minute, God is their judge. I'm not their judge. Okay, So you have to keep that in mind. James chapter 4 also talks about this idea of uh, setting yourself up as a judge, James chapter uh, 4 and verse 11. It says, Do not speak evil of one another, brothers. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And then he says this in verse 12. There's one lawgiver, and I don't think he means you. Okay, capital L, lawgiver, God, who's able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? So first of all, we, we cannot judge in this way that's unrighteous because it's God's place to judge. Then, number two, merciless judgment is forbidden. Merciless judgment is forbidden. The truth 
about judgment being done to you as you judge others and about your measure being measured back to you expresses the idea that you cannot consistently, uh, logically expect others or God himself to treat you differently than you treat others. Did you get that? You can, you can sit there and say, well, you know, I treat these people this way with a harsh, hypercritical, unrighteous judgment, but I want God to be fair to me. No, that's not how it works. In fact, in that parable that I alluded to earlier, you have the master judging the servant number one in the way that servant number one judged servant number two. And with the judgment that he meted, he got it back again right in his face. Merciless judgment is forgive is is forbidden by our Lord. You can't expect God to treat you differently than you treat other people. Now, He may treat you differently than you treat other people, but you can't expect Him to logically. It's hypocritical to expect mercy from God and hope for lenience from God if you do not offer hope, mercy and lenience to others in your own interactions with them. Number three, so we have merciless judgment is forbidden. God is the judge. Number three, John 8, 15 tells us that judging according to the flesh is forbidden. John chapter 8 and verse 15 says, You judge according to the flesh. Obviously a, a rebuke of the Pharisees. You judge according to the flesh. Flesh here would mean something like human standards, appearances, outward appearances. Reminds me, I think probably you too, of Samuel when God told him, look, you know, I don't judge according to the face, the outside, but rather the heart. Yeah, don't judge according to the flesh. Romans chapter 2, 1 to 3. This gives us the fourth reason that such judgment is forbidden. It's forbidden because judging others while you do the same things is hypocrisy. You remember that passage in Romans chapter 2? You know, kind of another one of these who are you kind of people. You, you know, somebody's... You somebody special here? He says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, Romans 2.1, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Here I can't help but think of the passage in John chapter 8, which is somewhat debated as to its presence in the text, but you remember the story about the woman caught in adultery and how the Lord dealt with those accusers by writing on the ground. And we all wish we could know just exactly what he wrote, but it became irrelevant to us when we saw that they were convicted by what was written. And it may well be that what Jesus was writing was reminding them of their own um, incidents of infidelity, shall we say, or indiscretions, that were exactly the same as what they were accusing this woman of doing. And so he said to them, all right, fine, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. Well, that knocks out pretty much everybody except for one person on the scene, Jesus himself, from casting a stone. You see that Jesus exercised mercy towards the woman. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. Think of that mercy. God has exercised mercy toward us. That really takes us back to our second point here. 
merciless judgment being forbidden. God is so merciful. He does not deal with us according to our iniquities. If He did, who would stand? Not a one. So, judgment is forbidden because you're about guilty of everything that you're going to judge others in as well. The person who passes judgment against other people but behaves in those ways in which he condemns others as, as a hypocrite. Number five, reason number five we should not judge. Uh, we draw Drawing this from just the whole text of the New Testament in particular is in Romans 14, and there's, a, there's several here in Romans 14 that I'm going to draw from, so you might as well turn there just the next three. Romans 14 um, <clears throat> tells us that judgment in matters... Let me say it this way. Judgment in things that do not matter is forbidden. Look at 14.3. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. So you might not understand the dietary um, scruples of a person or non-scruples of a person, but you do need to understand the principle that there is latitude in this age because the Lord declared all foods to be clean that somebody could participate in a ham sandwich and somebody might not want to because of their prior religious connection or maybe it could be a meat sacrifice to idols in a case like in 1 Corinthians 10 or maybe even here. But judgment in matters that don't matter is forbidden. Why are you wasting your time criticizing your brother that he eats or doesn't eat something. Just forget it. Move on. There are about a million more important things to think through and to do in your interactions with other people and discipling them and so on. So judgment in matters that don't matter is forbidden. Number six, uh, we alluded to this already in 14.4, judging another servant. Um. Let's look at verse 13 of chapter 14. Paul says this to the Roman church, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. The way I put this, we all need to have a healthy dose of mind-your-own-business medicine. You know, uh, We're going to see that we have enough of our own problems that we don't need to be chasing after those of everybody else. Romans 14.10. Look at this one. This is uh, number seven on my list. We are forbidden from executing this kind of unrighteous judgment because, well, let's read, but why do you judge your brother? or Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So judgment with contempt is forbidden. This is happening all the time today. Look at the political scene. People hatefully ascribing motivations and beliefs and practices to others that simply are not there. Contempt, hate-filled judgment is all too common in our day and age. Why are you doing that? Because, Paul says, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
and not only you, but the other person whom you're judging or the other group. Today, it's all about groups. You know what I mean? It's all about whites and blacks and rich and poor and Asians and whatever, Indians and so on. It's all this group thing. But it's the same thing, casting judgment on these. You're going to stand before God and give an account of passing judgment in things, maybe I should have put this as another one, you don't even know about. Like you don't even know 90% of what you would need to know to pass a proper judgment or make a right decision in a lot of these matters. And that takes us to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 5. Judgment has to await the right time. So judgment, unrighteous judgment is forbidden because there is a time for this. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. You know, the people that you don't think are necessarily too maybe spiritual or active in the church and you wonder, hmm, what's going on with them? Might cast dispersion on them or, uh, you know, that that kind of look like, hmm. Uh, You might just not know everything that will come out uh, in the wash, so to speak, at the judgment of God. So there is a time and a place for that. And you see, what I'm trying to do is trying to... um, warn us, as the Lord does, about a wrong kind of judgment, but also remind us that there is in the New Testament a right kind of judgment, and we have to think about this and weigh and balance the two. We can't just, you know, so glibly just throw something into one category or into the other. We have to think about this before we, let's say, open our mouths. 1 Corinthians 6.1 gives us another one, and that is, this is number uh, nine on my list, taking matters of judgment before unbelievers. Okay, Now, this is a little bit maybe moving aside from the main point, but I wanted to put it in here because it does touch on this matter of judgment. Taking matters of judgment before unbelievers. So in the Corinthian church, Christian A has some problem with Christian B, and they go to secular judge C. Well, why didn't Christian A and Christian B go to somebody in the church or the pastor of their Corinthian church and try to work this thing out? Same thing happens today. Christian A marries Christian B in the church right here. And then before you know it, Christian A files for divorce. Before whom? The secular authorities. And then goes to a judge, and the judge... Uh, makes some decision about how to divide the assets and the child care and all these sorts of... You've, you've just failed the 1 Corinthians chapter 6 uh, rubric altogether by suing, in effect, Christian A, suing Christian B and getting this marriage, uh, divorce rather, uh, executed by the secular authorities. I've always contended if you get married in the church... You should have to go back to the church to deal with your problems. But nobody wants to do that, do they? Uh, Colossians chapter 2 gives us number 10. Judgment is forbidden in things having to do with the law of Moses, like food laws, Sabbath laws, and things like that. Uh, I I gave this uh, kind of pushback to somebody in the Hebrew Roots movement not too long ago. Um, I think it was Hebrew Roots may have been a Seventh-day Adventist uh, person, but 
they were saying, you've got to worship on Saturday, and if you don't, you're in sin. I said, well, let's read Colossians 2.16 together. I am not permitted to allow you to judge me on that basis. Don't let anyone judge you in those things. Just, it's, it's irrelevant. You want to worship on Saturday? That's fine. Worship on Saturday. Want to worship on Sunday? Worship on Sunday. We have our reasons for doing that. And very carefully studied out reasons for worshiping on the Lord's Day, following the pattern that we see in the New Testament. But regardless of that, uh, we'd save ourselves a whole lot of time and effort if we wouldn't be judging based on these kinds of things. Uh, James chapter 5 and verse 9, here's another one. This is uh, complaining against one another. That's a form of judgment. And uh, by the way, where in the Bible does it tell us not to complain? Remember, there's a passage about that. Let me, uh, let me go back. Let me just, uh, I, I realized that I glossed over that. And I want to go to James 5.9. It says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. That grumbling against one another, said in the context of the divine judge, by the way. Philippians 2.14 says, Do all things without murmuring, murmuring or grumbling, complaining, disputing. Yeah, so complaining against another is, is a form of, of judgment. And then finally in 1 Peter in chapter 2, I ran into this verse, and again, maybe a little aside from uh, the main point, but let's read this. 1 Peter 2.23, Who, when he was reviled, speaking of Christ, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges, how? Righteously. Righteously. So this reminds us that human judgment is often an unrighteous judgment. God's judgment is always a righteous judgment. Uh, who knows Genesis 18.25? I think I have the address right. Shall not the... Well, that might be in the middle of the verse. Let me go see. Naomi, I think you know this verse, don't you? Shall not the judge of the earth do right? Uh, let's look and see. Genesis 18 and verse 25. Remember, this is in uh, Abraham's um, negotiations for Sodom. You know, if there's 50 people and 40, 30, 20, you know, 10, not even 10. But uh, he says, Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. So it wasn't the beginning of the verse. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's righteous judgment. So the kind of judgment that you use, and we're just getting right done, done with verse 2, and we're going to touch on 3 to 5 here in a moment. The kind of judgment you use will be reflected back on yourself somehow. God sees to it in His divine justice when He judges the living and the dead 2 Timothy 4.1 tells us, you know, I, I adjure you basically by God who will judge the living and the dead, that he will take into account how we have judged others. God will judge his people, Hebrews 10.30 says. And Revelation 20 tells us that God will judge people according to their works. So the passage prohibits unrighteous judgment, but at the same time it does not prohibit righteous judgment. And in fact, what, what the 
passage is going to teach us next in verses 3 to 5 is our primary concern needs to be with self-judgment, self-judgment. Look at verses 3 through 5, okay? We have a speck and we have a plank and we have the right way to handle judgment. Um, Have you ever seen a news story about uh, a person, usually a man, who has come to the hospital emergency room with a nail in his eye? Have you ever read a story like that? Yeah. Nail, nails to the eye are quite a common injury because of pneumatic nail guns. And uh, I was looking for an illustration of that, and I saw a construction video that didn't... Listen, don't, don't, it's, it's not bad, okay? A husband and wife building their house. I've watched this channel for a little while. And the, and the wife is making a deal about him wearing his safety glasses. And they're building a deck. And she is the photographer, the, the videographer, and she shows him working different things. And he has his safety glasses, but they're covering the eyes on the top of his head. You know those eyes? Not these eyes? And uh, she's getting after him, you know. And so, you know, she shows him putting the glasses down occasionally and kind of being obedient to what he's supposed to do. Well, he had his glasses down, and he puts the nail gun into a 2x8 or 2x10 blocking between some joists on their deck. And he shot the nail in, and apparently it, like, hit a uh, knot, and it bounced out, and it hit him on the glasses. So thus my illustration came to me (laughs) that I was looking for. Yeah. The nail in the eye. That has happened many, many a time. I read a journal, uh, start of a journal article on that where the, the doctors described what they had to do to get this nail out of somebody's eye and they, had a, they pulled it out and it tore more when it came out and they had to do a lens or something, whatever they had. And listen, I'm the last person that wants to talk about eye injuries and eye surgery. It's gross to me, okay? It just... Yeah, we don't talk about it anymore. Our poor son Daniel, when he was very small, came to his mom and said, I, I have an eyelash in my eye. Well, by several hours later, it became evident that it was no eyelash. It was a corneal abrasion. Somehow, when he was playing or something, he had hit something on his eye and it had scratched the not, not scratched, but actually taken a layer off of the cornea or the whatever the lens, the, the outer part is. So he had to have a little visit to the hospital and the, the uh, dye they put in there and the black light to see it. Like, there it is, right there. What can you do about it? Well, not much. Manage the pain and, you know, sleep on it. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. So uh, eye problems are a big issue. And uh, the Lord says... Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Now, I see chuckling out there, and that's the point. It's to help you to remember what the Lord is teaching. And what he's using here is is a literary tool or technique. And what is it called? Anybody know? What's that? I think you're right. It's hyperbole. It's, it's an exaggerated expression to make a point. 
he's having you picture, you know, in your mind the cartoon of a guy who has a little, you know, eyelash in there and another guy who has a big old nail in his eye or a big old board of wood sticking out of his eye. Obviously, he's unfit to make any kind of assistance to the person who has a very minor issue. The speck, the person looking for the speck, illustrates a person passing judgment on another person for a relatively small matter. It may be a matter, it may be a thing, but it's relatively small in the big scheme of things. It's the same as making a harsh judgment against your brother. The fault finder is the speck looker, okay? He's the guy who's looking for the speck. Now, the Lord says, why do you look at the speck? Look at that verse 3. Why do you look at it? This is a verb that means, you know, you're, you're kind of paying close attention to that speck, that thing that you have a problem with in his or her life, but you do not, what? It's a different verb. The idea is you're looking really deeply at that one thing, but you're not even observing, you're not even realizing, you're not even thinking, considering that you have some serious issues yourself. Okay, so our Lord's question indicates, first of all, the disproportionality of looking at this speck because of the size of the object in the illustration. And second, you don't even have the ability to take care of something while you harbor an even greater blinder in your own life. In this case of the one with the nail, uh, they said uh, the, the patient presented with uh, 6 over 18 vision. I, I don't know those numbers too well, but that's nothing like 2020, right? And when they were done, it was 6 over 9. I don't know what that is either, better or worse, but it doesn't sound good either way to me. Uh, you you can't see what you need to see. I mean, you've got to take the rest of the day off from work, that's for sure, uh, when you have an accident like that. Um, you know, you look at the problem in your brother's life, you don't even notice the huge problem in your own. Somehow you're intent on investigating others, but a, less, a much less acute sense of observation toward yourself. Note your own sinful inclination. Please note your own sinful inclination to magnify the problems of others and to minimize your own problems. You see that? That's just what the sin nature does because it makes us feel better, I suppose. And then look at verse number uh, 4. Jesus asks another rhetorical question. How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck? And look, you have a plank in your own eye. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 1, the Bible instructs us about restoring a brother who has some spiritual problem. And what does it say? Let you who are what? Spiritual. Restore such a one with a spirit of meekness. So you who are spiritual means you don't have the beams in your eyes. Okay, You've, You have come to a place of spiritual maturity. You are dealing with any known sin in your life looking for unknown sin, concerned about that matter, and you're trying to help another brother. By the way, that points out the nature of judgment that is acceptable. It is that which is constructive, not looking to destroy, but it's that which is looking to restore. Now verse 5, 
Jesus uses this un-PC word here, hypocrite, to first remove. So there is a place now for judgment. Look, he says, first remove the plank, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And I suspect when you remove the plank, A, enough time may have passed that the speck may have disappeared from your brother's eye because he matured in his faith, or you may have a clearer vision to either A, help you to help that brother, or to realize, oh, that thing that I was seeing there is really proportionally not that important. Just overlook it. Just let love cover a multitude of sins or pray for that brother, but don't get excited about it, okay? And you have the plank. The plank is the, the cast in the form of a hyperbole, this exaggerated statement, not meant to be taken literally, okay? We know that, uh, but it makes this scene in your mind that you think is... It's fairly ridiculous, helps you to remember the situation. But the literal truth is the plank represents sin in your own life. Sin in your own life. If you're focused on the speck in your brother's eye, may I say that you are guilty of straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Matthew chapter 23, where the Lord rebukes the Pharisees, has that phrase in it. And I'll read some of the larger context in Matthew 23, starting in verse 24. The Bible says, Blind guides, you who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish. There's, there it is. Judge yourself that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like the whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, swallowing a camel while straining out a gnat. Terrible. Terrible kind of thing. To carry the illustration uh, one step further, if I may, perhaps you're spiritually far-sighted, by which I mean you see better what's happening in others than you do in yourself. We all need to be a little more spiritually nearsighted than far-sighted. Does that make sense, that kind of illustration? The nearsighted stuff is 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 lost to your view if you're far-sighted. We must pray that God will not permit us to fall into that problem of spiritual immaturity and that God will help us to, as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, mind our own business. Remember I used that before? So take the plank out, deal with your own sin first. Then, you know, well, that will take some time, some effort, some prayer, uh, perhaps help from others that you might ask. But if you're going to be one to uh, cast a stone, so to speak, you better make sure that you're qualified to do that, John chapter 8 again. Then you'll see clearly to help your brother. And again, I emphasize it's help that you're seeking to provide, a service very different from the attitude of censorious judgment. Seek restoration instead of criticism. Seek help instead of put down. This is a basic Christian virtue, and it's good for us to review it so that we stay on the good path with it. 
It's kind of an odd thing if you think about it for a moment, what I'm saying. I'm saying to focus on your own things a little bit. But differently than the way that Philippians 2.21 says, there Paul says, I'm sending to you Timothy, for I have no man like-minded, for all care for their own things, but he, Timothy, will care for your estate. What I'm actually saying is you need to mind your own things a little bit more, but not in the sense of prohibiting yourself or, or ignoring people who need help. You want to be involved in that. You want to be serving others that way. But it may be that the best way you can serve others in spiritual dimension is to make sure that you yourself are useful and clean uh, before the Lord. Oftentimes people are living in long-term sin. Uh, they're not in the Word. They're not praying. They're not in church. And it's no wonder that they're of little use to God because they're just, I mean, like a dried up leaf on the vine. They need to get an infusion of, of nutrition before they can be useful to the Lord. And so you want to be that person who is filled up with the things of God so you can be useful to God. You can be serving others and, and you're noticing those sins in your own life. I suppose if I may be so bold to say that you would like mercy from God, wouldn't you? So if you would like mercy from God, how about if we show mercy to others? Perhaps it helps us to remember that we're fellow servants with one another. You know, me and all of you, brothers and sisters, fellow servants, moving along life's path, some in a little different position in life than others, but still... We're servants together of our great God. So spend more time judging yourself than judging others. Consider your own ways before volunteering yourself to correct another brother or sister. Remember, your own internal sins are just as visible to God as your external ones. He sees the planks that you might think are hidden from others, but they are glaring to God. He sees them very clearly. Your pride, your lack of forgiveness, your hate, your lust, your lack of mercy, your impatience, your self-righteousness, all are on wide open display toward God. And God hates that kind of lumber in your life. Make sure that you are getting the planks out of your life and concern yourself with that first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these reminding words to us tonight that are convicting. Lord, they help us to consider our ways, to be humble, to be merciful, to be kind, to be helpful, constructive in our criticism, not censorious in judgment, not hypercritical, certainly not hypocritical, not hate-filled. And Lord, I pray that this will, this message and the, the concepts that we have considered here will sharpen us, will strengthen us, will help us to live in accordance with your will and your word, that we might be better people, better followers of Christ because of it. Thank you, Lord, for this faithful flock of your people, for those that have taken the time to participate uh, watching live online or later afterwards will do the same and, and spend their time, valuable time, out of the 24 hours that you've given them today to focus on this passage of Scripture. May it uh, 
redound in dividends to them in their walk with you that are valuable and worthwhile. In Jesus' name, amen.